we're reading from 5 to 10. Jude, at the back of your Bible, just before Revelation. 5 to 10. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, there he has kept in, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual Im immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Amen. Good morning, my name is David, I'm the pastor of the church. Welcome to our visitors, and just a little... Um, uh, thing to our visitors as well. I'd much rather be preaching on the Acts of the Apostles than the Acts of the Apostates, but the fullness of Scripture means that we have to explore such things. And um, so if you came to Pitlochry, think it would be nice, go to this nice wee rural church. And uh, well, we're going to be just exploring some things in Scripture that many of us try to, skirt, uh, to shuck from. And it's difficult. And especially when we have got friends and loved ones that we may or may not be addressing by exploring little obscure books like Jude, who was a half-brother of Jesus, but actually didn't use that for his own glory. He called himself a bondservant of Jesus. And he only came to believe that Jesus was the saviour of the world when he met the resurrected Jesus. When he walked with Jesus all of Jesus' life, when he saw Jesus doing miracles and teach, etc., etc., he did not believe, but only when he had encountered the risen Christ. And that who is writing here to the church. And we've been working through this in our teaching Sundays, and this is one of them. Jude, worth fighting for. Can I pray rather than rush? Father, in your mercy, hear our prayers. That we would have ears to hear, a heart which is open, that you would build your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Thank you, Jesus, you've shown us the way. You're the first fruits of the new creation. You invite us to come follow. You say that we'll be known as your disciples if we obey everything that you have commanded. Have mercy on us because we fall short so far. Lord, we do not desire to have a judgmental heart because we know that you are the great judge. But Lord, we want to know your truth 
and we want to, even though it may be difficult and even though we don't understand so much of it, we want to be obedient to what you have revealed to us and have said that it's fine, it's final and it's finished. So I pray that the words of Jude and some of what I'm going to say today, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make it alive to us. We need, Lord, a revelation of the Holy Spirit. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when Jude began to write this very short but very powerful letter to believers, he says in verse 3, good to keep your Bibles open or your iPads or your phones open, but he says in verse 3, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. He was going to write a nice wee letter. He was going to encourage them. He was going to just talk about the things that they shared, a general letter. But he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to write something else. And that's where we get here. And he continued to explain the reason for his urgency. Verse uh, 4, he says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. That was the reasons for him writing these things. And it's with that backdrop that we look at verses 5. And I'm going to go through to verse 11. Our small group which meets on a Thursday, there's often a, a pile of books in the middle. Steve and Lois, who's not here, hosts us. And there's often a pile of Bibles and there's always a big commentary of um, Matthew Henry, you know, the 18th century Welsh theologian pastor. And Lewis has always gone into Matthew Henry. So I thought, I'm going to get a quote from Matthew Henry. That's really going to uh, please Lois. And lo and behold, she's not at church this morning. Um, but this is what Matthew Henry says. He says, hypocrisy is to do the devil's work in God's uniform. Isn't that quite insightful? They dress the part, but that's not who they really are. They're actors, they're fake, and they're hypocrites. Now, we've been called that over on many occasions, and we know in the heart of hearts not true, by the grace of God. But true hypocrites are those who do the devil's work, but in God's uniform. And if that's right, then apostasy... And apostasy is what Jude is addressing throughout this letter. Apostasy is taking off the uniform and letting people see who you really are, who you've always been. That's apostasy. You're just saying, no, I'm not keeping this on any longer. I'm going to show you who I really am. And we know apostasy means rebellion. It means falling away. And that can refer to individuals. It can refer to groups like this. It can refer to structures. That which has fallen away and is in rebellion against God's way, against the kingdom. And we pray thy kingdom come and thy will be done. So, if hypocrisy is putting on a show, then apostasy is leaving the theater altogether. Not taking part in that anymore. Because I'm being who I truly am and I'm revealing to the world who I truly am. 
And I was talking to one or two people before, because I had lots of time in my hands, so it was nice to just sit and chat. And well, I was chatting about some little things I've, I've seen in TikTok, whether it be Christian leaders, Christian thinkers, but mostly Christian influencers. And they've got a big old megaphone. And they are teaching things which are false doctrine. And many of our young people are sitting listening to these people. It may be tickling their ears. But these people have got a huge platform. And so it's not uncommon today. It takes you seconds to go onto a social media platform and find Christian thinkers, theologians, influencers who are deconstructing Christianity. Who are putting it all back together again, but only the parts that they deem to be worthy of that Christianity, of that gospel, which Paul says is no gospel at all. And they take the creeds, which have been established for centuries and centuries, they take the canon and scripture and they decide, well, that's not really a gospel, that's not shouldn't be in there, so we're not going to believe that, and that's just something that was pertaining to that time, etc., etc. We've heard it. And maybe we've been a part of it. And they take that which has been taught and believed and established and been the foundation for disciples of Jesus Christ since the earliest church to, uh, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and, and the things that came from that and they deconstruct it and they create something else with a big platform with many people who are excited to hear what they are saying and they become influencers and they speak with authority over people and they have followers. And it's disconcerting to see that. It's alarming, it's troubling, but we should not be surprised because if we read Jude, we see that this has been going on for 2,000 years. Jude says it. Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They look like you, they talk like you, but they are not you. They are not led by the Spirit of God. They are not holding to the truth that was once entrusted to the saints for all time. It's been happening since Jude. And if you look at Jude's examples, they've been happening 2,000 years before Jude. So it's not new, it's not no novel, but it is noteworthy. Because Jesus said that there would be a time before he returns that would be marked by spiritual deception. And what, did, what does that mean, spiritual deception? Where are they? Jesus speaking in the parable of the wheats and the tares. Matthew 13, you should remember that. You don't need me to teach you that. And if you don't know what that is, go and explore that. It is there. And what somber words that Jesus says here in Luke 18. When I, the Son of Man, comes again, will I find faith in the earth? Revelation, you've got the seven churches there and the church of Laodicea. That is actually full of apostates. Full of people who've left the stage. And I would say that Jesus wasn't in that church. Why do I say that? 
Well, because Jesus says in Revelations 3.20 about that church, here I am. I stand at the door outside. I've added that word in, but I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And do you know what? Apart from the book of the letter Philemon, every single New Testament letter book, however you want to describe it, there is warnings about deception, spiritual deception, false teaching. Judah's one of them. It's one of the most difficult ones, but not the only one. So we may be troubled, it may alarm us, but we should not be surprised. Scripture is full of these warnings to us, to the church, to be on our guard, to take seriously knowing God's word, digesting God's word, speaking about it on the way and with our children, learning and remembering and knowing God's way. So, with that, I've got three things briefly I'm going to look at because I could spend a lot of time in here. But I want to look at the, the lessons in Jude. And I want to look at three lessons, three things, three things that he imprints that I can see, but there's lots, lots of things in here. I'm just going to look at three of how we can combat spiritual deception here in the church at large in our denomination in our own however it may be in our own lives how we can identify if we've been deceived and allow God's word to read us please look at verse 5 though you already know this I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. So the first thing he does is he says, remember. He appeals to their memory. Doesn't go into in great detail. He presumes, and I guess it's a Jewish audience, he presumes uh, they'll know what I'm speaking about when I simply mention they delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. He's speaking of a whole people group here. He's speaking of a, a, a being delivered from plague and through the, the, the sea and from the, the mighty army. He's, he's talking about being delivered from deception and actually being delivered from apostasy. Speaking about generations and, and possibly millions of people here. And he's saying, remember? So for us, if we don't know what that means... You need to explore what that is. And not just always rely on 30 minutes from here, three or four times a month, as being the only time when you're exploring Scripture. Because even here, my job is simply to remind us. We may call it a teaching Sunday, and there will be things that are new to us. But this is supposed to be a time where I say, remember, remember, remember. And Jude does that here to this people group, presumably mostly Jewish people. And it's this history must be recalled, must be remembered. History must then be acted upon. And the third thing, for the lesson to be learned. That's 
a good thing for us to remember. And what do we have in our culture for that? Well, we have um, Remembrance Sunday. And here in Pitlochry, we've called it Pitlochry Remembers. Where we come together at the War Memorial. And this year, I've organized for the pipe band to, to come in with veterans and from the, the uniform groups. And we will stand there and we will pause for a moment on that Easter Sunday and we will remember. It's an important thing for us to demonstrate to our children. Don't forget the sacrifice that people have made. Don't forget the horrors of war. It's not glamorous at all. Don't forget. Remember. Because we don't want to go there again. We do not want Ukraine and Russia to escalate. We may find it difficult, but there needs to be some sort of dialogue there. Some sort of conversation. Because we will not forget what it was like of those years. And some of you experienced that and you know the stories from your parents. That that sort of war is brutal and is horrible. So that no one forget, lest we forget. But 10 years ago, I was in Israel with a wee friend and we toured the country. And one of the things we did, we went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And in that place, it's dedicated, for, uh, dedicated to the memory of the Jews who were murdered, honoring those Jews who fought against the Nazi and the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who also selfishly... Uh, put themselves in danger and, and died because they saw what was evil and they stood up against evil. And I will never forget walking through, and, and you, had, uh, you, you weren't allowed to deviate from this path. Again, I, I imagine that the people who designed the, the, the museum wanted to get across something of when you were told to march and go that way, you were told to march and go that way. And, and we were encouraged or led through a maze and at one point you walk over a glass floor and under that glass floor are the remains of glasses and shoes and books and personal items of those who were murdered by the Nazis and I can easily remember an overwhelming thought that I had I can never forget this and so we tell our children even though there are those who are influencers who deny such things happen, we will not be in part of that, lest we forget. And Jude wrote in verse 5, I want to remind you, though you already know this, the lesson of your history must be recalled. We've got a rich church history of how our forefathers engaged with these things came to a conclusion that was how the Spirit of God was leading in these things. We can't forget that. History is so, so important to learn good lessons and the bad lessons from history. But then we must take that which has been figured out by godly men, the saints who went before us, and we must act upon that and then learn the lesson. Where do we see this in Scripture? We see that in the Passover. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. That is a command. Remember how God did this. Remember how God has always been faithful to you. 
And in that remembering, we bless the Lord because we're recalling how he has taken us through some difficult times. And here for the the Jewish people, when they celebrated Passover, that was a remembrance of how they were um, saved from that angel of death. God's blessing was on them if they obeyed everything that God commanded them to do. And Jesus took that Passover. And we celebrate communion. Luke 22, 19, Jesus says, as he broke the bread, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He speaks about his death, his suffering, and his subsequent resurrection. Remember. It's important to remember. The lesson, to then act upon it, and then learn from it. This call for us as God's people is all the way through the New Testament. Paul says it in Romans 15, 15, Yet I have written to you quite boldly in some points to remind you of them again. Because we forget. And Peter says it as well in 2 Peter 1, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. So he's going to continually remind them, remind them, remind them, and remind them. So we are to remember. How many times have you been reading through Scripture or through a very familiar passage in the Bible and you go, wow, I've forgotten all about that. Or, goodness, how have I missed that? I must have read this passage ten dozen times and I've never seen it like that before. Remember. Because sometimes we forget. And so in verse 5, Jude says, I want to remind you, even though you already know this. We don't need new truths. We need to reclaim and recall never-changing truths. don't need to deconstruct. So what other lessons does Jude give here uh, for us to combat uh, spiritual deception? I'm going to read um, a wee bit more. So he says that um, from verse 5, you already know this, I want to remind you of the Lord delivered the people of Egypt, but later um, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. What other lessons can I see anyway? And it's the second lesson. God is not afraid to judge. Even those who are most favored. God is not afraid to discipline those whom he loves. To bring it into the New Testament is from the work to, um, to help. And the first favored people there is Israel. God saved them from the bondage of Egypt. He brought them to Sinai, established the covenant there, guided them by his presence for 40 years. Pillar of cloud by day, which would have been quite nice to protect them from the midday sun in the desert, I guess. And then at night, God tucked them in with a, a nice 
big pillar of fire. His comforting presence with them all the time. But we found out that God destroyed those who did not believe. What does that mean? What is that we're meant to recall? Well, it is this, that God destroyed a full generation of adults, let's say, bar for two men, Caleb and Joshua. Because the rest did not believe, lacked faith, rebelled. Why did God do this? Apostasy. Continuous rebellion. Take us back to Egypt. Take us back to slavery. Take us back to the land we knew about. Take us back to bondage. It's much better than this. It's much better than, than all of these promises that we don't see yet. We expected so much more. We remember what we had and we'd much rather go back there. And God says, okay, let you go back to your life of death. But for Caleb and Joshua. He wasn't going to allow that faithlessness into a promised land. So it took those 40 years to train a new generation to remember the ways of the Lord. And you'll see how Joshua takes that seriously in establishing again the covenant with this new generation as they go into the promised land. People who are willing to say we will trust the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. And in all of our ways, we will acknowledge him and he will make straight our paths. So what's the point Jude's making here? Well, God, he is the God who saves, yes, but he is also the God who judges. And the angels. Um, well, there's a dispute, and I'm not going to get into the dispute here, but there's a dispute about what could Jude be referring to here? Uh, could it be the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6? If you don't know what that is, you can go and look at that. Uh, could he be referring to the fall of Satan in the third of the angelic hosts who rebelled? And we see a little bit of that in Isaiah 14. It could be. I'm not going to get into that. It's up to you to go and figure that out. And I don't know if that really necessarily helps us with the point I'm trying to make anyway. Whoever he is speaking about, I think the point that Jude is making here is this. God even judges the angels, not just Israel. Those beings who have stood in the presence of God, who've been a part of the army of the Lord, I guess who've seen him face to face, I presume. And yet that was not enough for them. And God says, okay. I'll bring judgment on that and give you what you desire. To be thrown from my presence, to be bound with everlasting chains. And it's not just Israel. It's even the angelic hosts who must experience my judgment because you know, God won't just allow that to go unpunished or unnoticed. He is a God of justice. And then Sodom and Gomorrah. Everyone knows what happened there. The Old Testament and the New Testament give numerous comment on this. Oh, where's that, David? Prove it. Go and look for it yourself. It's there. Dead easy. Bible Gateway. Type in Sodom and Gomorrah and you'll come across a lot of stuff. And you yourself work out what that is all about. 
And there's a significant body of evidence in how history has always viewed Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities and the cities of the plain. So why mention it here? What's led Jude to reference Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember these words in verse 4? For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago. It's all about them addressing these guys who have slipped in of influence, who are, who are teaching the church. They are godless men, not righteous men, who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ. He's always addressing this. And so he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because these men have turned the grace of God into immorality. Some say God is love. God celebrates difference and welcomes individual expressions of who he's made us and who we really are. I'm sure that was being said in the time of Jude. And it is said so much today. Even from the pulpit. So Jude mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. Because in the pulpit or in the small groups or whatever it was, these men who were godless men were changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. What does it sound like? Well, I can love who I want to love. What right do you have to judge me? That is what the false teachers may have been saying. I know I'm reading between the lines. I'm using my imagination here. They were endorsing or practicing immoral sexual autonomy. Immoral, not moral, sexual. And it's up to them. They will be the one who will judge, most notably due to their feelings. Jude calls it sexual immorality. It's a compound word that he uses there. A Greek compound word that suggests sexual deviance. I'm not making this up. I'm being quite strict and following strict notes because I'm prone to waffle and to di digress and I'm not going to do that. Because here I'm speaking to situations where there's loved ones involved in this that we love dearly. We want to support. We want to encourage and build up and see them live their life to the best of their ability. And therefore I choose my words extremely carefully. This is a compound word that suggests a sexual deviance. Meaning a departure from the original intent. Perversion, as Jude mentions here, only adds to the seriousness of this that he feels he must address it. And Sodom and Gomorrah, only up until recently, has always been associated with homosexuality. And by that I do not mean, um, by that I, I mean um, a man lying with a man. I do not mean a man lying with a boy, perverse that that is. And even our influencers today do not call that, or try not to call that pelophidia. They call it minor attraction. 
to soften the blow of what it is. It's a pedophilia. You may call it minor attraction, but it is what it is. It's a deconstruction of the word. And the seriousness of it. The word homosexual here is a man lying with a man, not a man lying with a boy. And it's only recently that people have challenged this, deconstructed it. So what's the point Jude making here? I think he's making this point. We remember that God wasn't afraid to judge Israel. God didn't shirk from judging the angels and even whole cities and regions who had erred from God's way. This is a serious, somber word. Not one to be taken lightly. Someone's left. They did not like what I was saying. That's difficult. But I believe it's the truth. And the third point I want to make is that corruption leads to rebellion or apostasy. Verse 8 and 11, in the same way these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority and slander celestial beings, but even the archangel Michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but says the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoned animals, these are the very things that destroy them, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Again, notice that Jude is reaching back into their collective memory. He's mentioning so much in there and he is presuming that they know this. And he says that these false teachers, these theologians, these leaders, these influences have a corrupt character corrupt thinking and corrupt practice. You see that in verse 10. These very things, he says, will destroy them. But this wouldn't have happened if they had continued to come under the authority of God. Everyone has authority. Everyone comes under some sort of authority. But by which authority were these godless men who'd slipped into their church? By what authority did they do these things and teach these things? Well, first of all, Jude calls them dreamers. These dreamers. They consider their dreams, their thoughts, their feelings to be of greater value than the word of God. They reject authority because they elevate themselves above authority. This is how I feel. This is what I think. This is what is in my heart. Irrespective of what God says about it. That musty, dusty old book that has been written over 4,000 years. Irrelevant. Get with the script, as David Cameron says X amount of years ago. Get with the script. Modernize. How vain. How full of yourself to elevate yourself over the authority of God. What else did they do? They slander celestial beings. They speak evil of unseen heavenly authority, possibly. Or maybe of seen ecclesiastical authority. The canon of scripture, creeds, what 
counsels, whatever it may be, that have been tried and tested over generations. They question and they put themselves above such authority. Or even the governmental authority. How arrogant, if you think about it. These dreamers. Because even the archangel Michael did not reproach Satan, but referred to the role assigned to him and the role assigned in heaven by saying the Lord rebuke you. There's lots I could say about where that possibly could have come from, but it's not important just now. But not these false teachers, these theologians, these influencers, they're above all of this, or so they suppose they are. And just to finish with very quickly, verse 11, there's no time to look at Cain or Balaam or Balaam or Korah. Again, I presuppose you know what these stories are from the Old Testament. But just to say, in summary, I would say that the way of Cain is religion without saving faith. And the error of Balaam is using your influence as a person of faith or a supposed person of faith and leading others astray away from the way of Jesus. And the rebellion of Korah, I've just simply put down rejection of what God has established. Please do not go and think that I have stood up here to be against anyone. I'm trying my very best to be true to the word of God of how I understand it. And at the end of the day, I could be wrong. It's the beauty of it. And as I pray after this service, I will say, Lord, I've done what I've thought. Who's influencing us? Who's teaching us? Who's speaking into our lives? Who do we go to who will speak with authority? Do we desire the way of Jesus? And I want to add in something else. And I don't want to just talk about sexuality. I want to talk about how we speak about one another. And how we value or how we are stewards of our finances. And of our time and of our day. I speak about these things that we so easily can sweep under the carpet but look at matters of sexuality as being the greatest of sin that is just so unbiblical. There's a level playing field here. Jesus says, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. So do not judge lest you be judged. But let's see that balance between the grace of God and the truth of God. Let's not go into any of those errors that love people. May we not be known as hypocrites or apostates. And may we build one another up in the way of Jesus and invite others into that. Maybe even especially those who struggle with their sexuality, with their identity, as much as the prostitutes and the whores into this church family to stand here with those who struggle with lust, with anger, with feelings of betrayal.
Amen.